Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty princess likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me. So, Rav, say hello to everyone, and please tell them how they can chat live and submit questions to our show. Hi, everyone. It is great having you back here with us. Um, The best way to submit questions and stuff like that is just to go to our Facebook page. That is just Provocative Enlightenment Radio on Facebook. Uh, We have a few people in there that are already chatting away a little bit, so you can come in and join us. And also, if there's any um, information that is provided on the air, any extra orals or anything like that, we will post that right there on the page. So you can always go there and, and take a look. Do come in and say hello. All right, in this week's Spotlight, I wanted to discuss the idea of a potential, a potential, if you will, for a first principle of agreement governing human behavior. What is a first principle? It is what I like to think of as a starting place for peace in the world. There can never be peace as long as ethnocentric and religious bias teaches us a point of view instead of fact. Take for the example the idea that life is sacred. One might think that everyone could agree on at least this as a first principles in the affairs of man, a sort of moral imperative that applies to all. We would state our first principle this way. Every human being has a right to live. In science, a first principle is held to be a premise or hypothesis that cannot be proven. As the great mathematician Kurt Gödel put it, quote, all first principles are inherently unprovable, close quote. However, what can be done with a first principle, say the one in physics that Hawking made famous, the Big Bang, is to test the principle by testing theories the principle implies. For example, a Big Bang implies an expanding universe. Test this, and if verified, it tends to support the first principle. To apply a first principle to man may be somewhat of a departure from traditional applications of first principle usage. However, I would submit that it is both needed and appropriate. This is why. First principles do at least two things for the communities involved with their application, science or humanities. The first is to lead the communities in exploring the implications and developing methods to cross-pollinate between disciplines, for example, as chemistry and physics do. The second is to provide a visual landscape, if you will, that can be embraced by all lay persons and specialists. Okay, so say we have a first principle and we call it life. We assume that all human life is precious and that all human beings have a right to live. 
We cannot prove this any more than we can prove the Big Bang. But we can work out a number of theories or ways to test the principle, especially in the disciplines of political science, sociology, psychology, philosophy, and so forth. We can also create a visual framework that most will at least initially embrace. Therefore, as simple as this may seem, its elegance is in the agreement that all human beings have a right to live. If the world would accept this one simple premise, then wars might just be minimized if not ended. Unfortunately, the fact is that the world does not accept this premise. Indeed, there are many in the world that believe it is their duty to simply kill others. Life has no special meaning or value if the life fails to believe in a certain way or a certain thing for some. Given this sad state of the world, how and where does one begin to reach the simple accord that all life is sacred? Those are my thoughts. Ravinder, what are yours? You know, that's a... A complicated issue. I do think all life is sacred. Um, that's why I'm vegan as well, because I think it is. And I think all plants and everything are sacred too. So it goes, I think it comes down to what you do with the information. I think it just gets a, a little bit more complicated. Um, so yeah, all life is sacred. But if someone has committed heinous crimes, um, then perhaps they do deserve the death penalty. Not that I believe in the death penalty either. It's, it's just really interesting trying to pass it all out and trying to figure out exactly what it means. So perhaps it just comes down to uh, it should all be respected and you should think before taking a life of any kind. It See, just and, and, and I don't think capital consciousness deters and it certainly no. doesn't you know, rehabilitate, and it costs the taxpayer more than it does to incarcerate these people for life. So theories of penology break down when you look at mm -hmm. that. and might make you feel good um, for some, but, you know, the bottom line is it. But, you know, here's a really abiding point for right now in this time and place. We have shut this entire economy down. Mm -hmm. It is costing people their livelihoods. Their, their life savings. And we have done that. Why? Because of the sanctity of life. We're willing to do that in order to save lives. We are indeed. Should we be? I believe so. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Professor Joel Weinberger, and we discussed his work and book, The Unconscious. Brian wrote, I like how well the guest answered the questions concisely and with care for lay listeners. Love the show and you all bringing new shows to the world. I love your y'all there, Brian. <laughs> RK wrote, love the show, bottom line, free will entails. First, making the unconscious conscious. And then you need to make your conscious conscious. That's probably the best remark I have anyone has made regarding the show. <laughs> Moving on, Pat wrote, your programs are awesome. My daughter said when she was studying for the Virginia Bar, she played your CDs day and night. 
She attributes passing to your program. Zinnia wrote, I just wanted to let you know that I used your healing from trauma for survivors of abuse. I played it, and after three times I felt somewhat different, stronger. I was able to finally verbalize what I expected from the person I was attached to and being mistreated by, without crying or sinking into depression. It's been transformational for me. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show, A Life Worth Living, with our special guest, Professor William Ferriolo. Professor Ferriolo has been with us before, but for those of you who may have missed his last appearance, let me tell you a little about him. William Ferriolo received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma in 1997. Since that time, he has been teaching philosophy at San Joaquin Delta College in Stockton, California. His books include Cynical Maxims and Marginalia, Meditations on Self-Discipline and Failure, Stoic Exercises for Mental Fitness, You Die at the End of Meditations on Mortality and the Human Condition, God Bless the Broken Bones, Meditations over Botched, Bungled, and a Beautiful Year, and of course the subject of today's show, A Life Worth Living, Meditations on God, Death, and Stoicism. I was blessed by today's guest to receive an advanced review copy of his book, And in my opinion, his book represents an essential contribution to all who struggle with living a meaningful life. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor William Ferriolo. Well, thank you very much for inviting me back. It is uh, uh, an honor to be back for the third time. And uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, the uh, endorsement you provided for my book. A gentleman, a scholar such as yourself, having a, your blurb on the on the book jacket certainly doesn't hurt. So I appreciate all of that very much. You sure know how to blow smoke, Professor. <laughs> of course I do. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> all right. As you know, on this show, we like to know three things. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? We'll get to that. But what are you passionate about today? And, you know, when and why did you become interested in Stoicism? Well, Stoicism kind of, um, uh, I kind of stumbled uh, onto Stoicism. Uh, there's a long story. I think I, I told part of it the last time that uh, I was on your show or the time before that. But um, I lost my scholarship to college. I, uh, I had to find a new major. I had to find a new career. And um, I was taking some philosophy courses, uh, stumbled around through the curriculum until someone gave me a degree. I didn't know what to do with a degree in philosophy, so I went to graduate school. And I, uh, I took up space there for a few years until someone gave me a, a PhD. And I, I <laughs> kind of bungled into a job <laughs> at San Joaquin Delta College. And I've been there since 1997. Um, Stoicism, on the other hand, it wasn't my dissertation was not in Stoicism uh, or anything related to it. It's um, I have an anxiety and depression disorder, uh, and I find stoicism as well as other wisdom traditions like Buddhism, for example, uh, enormously helpful for gaining kind of 
rational governance of my emotions, of my mental processes, etc. Uh, I hope that answer didn't go on too long. No, that's that's wonderful, you know, and I, and I like it. You've got a great personality, and, I, and it comes through when you just go ahead and talk. So I'm not going to interrupt you or stop you. You heard today's spotlight. Uh, yes. What What are your thoughts on the idea of treating all life as sacred, um, especially at a time like what we're dealing with now where we're really trading, you know, one fortune for another fortune? We have to decide which treasure is is most important to us and our culture. Well, I, I think it's advisable to treat uh, all human life as if it is prima facie morally valuable, uh, arguably uh, the most morally valuable thing we've encountered. Um, I am willing to consider the possibility that certain people could behave in such uh, in such fashion that they may um, th- it may be justifiable to deprive them uh, of life. I, I'm not particularly troubled by the executions of the architects of the final solution and, uh, you know, the Third Reich, for example, that um, right. I, I've never wept for them. Um, so I, I think starting with that, uh, all human life is prima facie valuable, um, prima facie uh, arguably more valuable than uh, anything else. Uh, and I would I would actually extend that to uh, to life in the womb. But um, there are those who would disagree with me there. Obviously, I think that's a, a, a good starting place for first principles. OK, so l- l- let me just kind of take that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you talk about executions following the Second World War, you talk about wars um, you know, those are those are really extenuating circumstances. Right. But in a day to day world, uh, capital punishment, um, where do you fall on capital punishment? I mean, you're a martial artist and and uh, you enjoy watching the fights. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But um, there's a difference between aggression of the kind that we use for entertainment or the kind that we use for fitness and um the kind of aggression that's involved when we just decide we're intentionally, deliberately going to take somebody's life. Well, first of all, I'm a I'm a martial artist in roughly the same sense that fly fishing is a contact sport. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I qualify as a martial artist. <laughs> Certainly not these days. Um, when it comes to state-sponsored execution, capital punishment, I um, I I don't have a very very strong view about it. I have vacillated. At the moment, I come down on the side that it has sufficient deterrent force to probably save some innocent lives and uh, sufficient deterrent force of that type that it is probably warranted in retaining it for um, for the worst cases, for relatively rare cases. But if it were abolished tomorrow, I would not uh, protest. I would not lose sleep over it. All right. Let's talk a little bit about stoicism, especially for those in our audience who are perhaps unfamiliar with it. The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius was a warrior as well as a leader. Uh, I don't know if he would have been as uh, modest about his warrior skills as you are about your martial arts skills, (laughs) but, but he was among the early Stoics. Zeno, of course, was the founder 
Uh, and he taught in Athens, and basically, you know, his teachings were around moral principles. You correct me if I have any of this wrong. But the emphasis was on goodness and peace of mind gained from living what he called a life of virtue. Virtue in accordance with nature. So essentially we have, if I understand it, the stoic perspective that, well, you do what you can about what you can do, but accept what you cannot do about what you can't do. Flesh that out for us. Uh, yes, you've got it essentially correct. Um, there, there are the Stoics refer to internals. Internals are things that uh, conditions that we can determine just by the exertion of our will, without mediation or assistance from any part of the the external world. Um, the the cardinal Stoic virtues are wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Uh, I prefer self-discipline as a translation of temperance. Uh, and those are all within our control according to Stoic uh, doctrine. It's, it's up to you. Um, you can pursue wisdom. You can uh, do your best to make yourself more courageous, more just, more fair dealing with, uh, with persons. And you can uh, exert your will to moderate your uh, various desires and aversions and so on. Whereas there's really nothing that you can directly do about um, other people, what they say, what they believe, how they behave, the economy, whether or not uh, a pandemic breaks out, uh, whether or not, you know, the government responds to the pandemic in this way or that way. Those are all externals. And the Stoics don't just counsel uh, acceptance of them in the sense of kind of shrugging and saying, ah, what can I do? Uh, they actually counsel an attitude that Nietzsche later referred to as amor fati, the love of fate. Um, we should learn to love the fact that the world is uh, precisely as it is when it comes to externals, even those that are challenging, even those that are uh, dispreferred, to put it in Stoic, uh, in Stoic language. Um, the world is anthropic. Allows for the presence of complex, intelligent beings like us to be here, and we should uh, experience joy and gratitude uh, at that fact. Okay, now you know the common, what should I say, prejudice against uh, Stoicism, criticism at least by many, is that you know, Stoicism, you know, leans towards determinism. Uh, it, it, it holds out false hope. It, it puts people in too uh, rigid a place where, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, the government is doing it, which, you know, is not entirely true. I mean, we, we live in a, a democratic republic where we might vote, where we can pick it, where we see one person, you know, in history, a Martin Luther King, for example, change the entire government. See, your version of Stoicism differs from this classical, more rigid view. Define that for us, please. Well, I'm not entirely convinced my view does differ. Um, I think determ I think there's there's pretty fair evidence that um, we live in a deterministic universe, with the possible exception of quantum phenomena. Um, our bodies and our brains um, are, as, as far as we can tell, they are governed by deterministic causal principles, uh, neurology, biochemistry, heredity environment broadly construed. 
So um, we, it seems that our, our bodies will do what the world makes them do, and that includes our brains as far as I can tell. But what we, what we can uh, govern, what we can guide is the, the direction of our will, the exertion of our will. And whereas you take someone like uh, Martin Luther King, he changed society and changed society's views by speaking, by attempting to convince people to change their views. Uh, he wasn't really in control of their views actually changing. And of course, you know, a lot of people uh, listened to what he said and, and were not persuaded. Uh, luckily, uh, enough were persuaded to make significant social changes. But had he had he encountered a different environment, he he might not have been successful. Um, he can only govern what he believes, what he says, how he conducts himself, et cetera, just like the rest of us. That's my view. So you're saying you don't really differentiate your your own interpretation of Stoicism from your contemporary commentators? Uh, not in that respect. Um, most of my contemporary commentators seem to, um, I think the place where, where we differ is with respect to the concept of Stoic cosmopolitanism. I, I think it's often misunderstood by contemporary commentators, and I think it, it's sometimes used for uh, what I'll call ideological purposes, or maybe misused for ideological purposes. Uh, of course, they might be right and I might be wrong, and if you ask them, they'll tell you that I am. But uh, that's that's one place where I tend to um, be at odds with some of the contemporaries, like, for example, uh, Donald Robertson and Massimo Piliucci. I, we, we have very different conceptions of, of Stoic cosmopolitanism. But when it comes to... Um, just the fundamentals of what the basic uh, virtues are, how they're to be enacted, um, causal determinism. I, I think I don't think we disagree there, but you know, they may tell you differently. All right. Well, let's move to this. How might we use uh, this philosophy, um, especially right now in the current pandemic, to uh, to to live a better life, a more meaningful life? Well, in the midst of a pandemic, um, one thing we have to recognize is that we cannot control the behavior of a virus. We can control our behavior. Uh, I have entirely stopped licking doorknobs. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a significant adjustment for me, but uh, I, I, I can control that. Um, I haven't uh, been shaking anyone's hand for a long time now. I never was a big fan of handshaking anyway. It always seems vaguely simian to me. I think the bow is far superior, but um, I, I can't control uh, what uh, Governor Newsom um, says, what, you know, what uh, um, rules are enacted. I can't control what President Trump and the coronavirus task force do. Um, I can I can practice social distancing. Of course, if I'm outside mowing the lawn and someone uh, tackles me, <laughs> if I didn't hear him coming, I, I can't help the fact that I've been tackled. We, we can govern our attitude. I, I can uh, do my best not to fret too much about getting the virus. I, I try to avoid it. But uh, if I do contract the virus, I hope that I will handle it in rational fashion. I hope I will not uh, panic. I hope I will not make more of a nuisance of myself than is necessary. Um, those are those are ways in which we can um, be rational, be uh, be. Um, uh, self, self uh, controlled, self disciplined during a time when it's it's tempting to um, you know have have an emotional uh, an emotional difficulty. You can you can govern that, I believe. 
you, you know, I guess you, you have a number of meditations. They don't happen to be in this particular book. They're in one of your other books. But I'm, I'm drawn to, to mention that because it's a time, you know, when you, you're confined and maybe because of the close quarters and the amount of time you're spending with, you know, siblings or your spouse, uh, it's, and, and the nervousness and the fear. There's, there's so much energy that can just be used inappropriately to do some serious damage in family relationships. So when we come back from the break, um, I'd like you to take, you know, just a minute or two, if you will, and give us a couple of concrete examples that we can use, that our listeners can use to quiet that beast within and be more accepting of uh, a, 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 a Stoic's perspective of life, if you will. All right. Okay. Okay, we are speaking with Professor William Ferriolo about his book, A Life Worth Living, Meditations on God, Death, and Stoicism. You can learn more about our guest books by visiting Amazon.com. He has several of them. They're great reads. I strongly recommend them. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor William Ferriola about his work and book, A Life Worth Living, Meditations on God, Death, and Stoicism. Great read. Please get the book. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting Amazon.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Your chosen music today, Professor, is The Devil Wears a Suit and a Tie by Coulter Wall. You're going to have to explain this one to me. Why is it so important to you? And how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I have seen photographs of Jeffrey Epstein wearing a suit and a tie. So <laughs> you, don't get too, you don't get too much closer to the devil than that guy. They, they say you shouldn't uh, speak ill of the dead, but in his case, I just don't care. Um, no, I, 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 first of all, I, I really like Coulter Wall. I like his voice. I like uh, the simplicity of his style. But um, don't, don't you think that if there, if there is a devil, and if the devil, uh, e- even just metaphorically, if, uh, if people perpetrate evil out of perhaps a, a sense of uh, selfishness, uh, I, I suspect that a number of them wear a suit and a tie. I not going to disagree with that. Not going to disagree with that at all. I think we tend to think of perpetrators as the the guy with a hoodie that's breaking in the back of the house, you know, that's up on some drug. And that may be true, but we uh, often overlook the dude in the three-piece suit with the tie and those cufflinks that's all polished up. And, mm-hmm. and there are plenty of examples of that. So, okay. All right. Listen. Two-part question, taking off from where we were from the prior break. One, I wanted you to provide, you know, a couple of examples that our audience could use, but particularly in light of your own admission about anxiety and depression and how you view stoicism um, to to soothe that aspect and, and to control those feelings. 
we all have heightened anxiety and arousal today. What are you? What is your guidance? Uh, yes, anxiety, frustration, uh, anger. Uh, I re- regrettably, I read recently that um, I forget it was it was one of the Western European nations. Uh, evidently, at least according to this report, uh, cases of spousal abuse had skyrocketed um, since the beginning of the lockdown. Yeah. Presumably, because people are they're spending much more time together, um, and they are anxious and angry and frustrated. Um, it is. Uh, There is no excuse um, in a pandemic or a lockdown. Uh, None of that is an excuse to engage in spousal abuse. There there are no excuses for that kind of thing. We have to hold ourselves accountable. We can't use uh, the pandemic as an excuse for irrationality, for ignoble behavior, for um, we can't say, well, I did this. I did this terrible thing, but it really wasn't my fault. It was, you know, it was the circumstances. Um, that is uh, certainly Stoics would not endorse that attitude. Um, you know, st- a number of the Greco-Roman Stoics uh, faced exile, uh, faced uh, either execution or were forced, uh, compelled to commit suicide, like Seneca was. No matter what the circumstances are, whether you live under a tyrant, whether you're entirely free, anywhere in between. Um, uh, trying to attain virtue, attain wisdom, try and live a noble life, um, the effort to do so is always available to you. And it's always, in my view, the, the uh, preferable choice, preferable to an ignoble life, prefer- preferable to a, a life of irrationality driven by our bestial impulses. Even though, you know, I have bestial impulses like the rest of us, and I, <laughs> you know I don't claim to uh, have perfectly mastered them. Not even close. So if, if I'm understanding it correctly, what we wanted, the first aspect is to take responsibility for all of our actions, not to look for some way to justify uh, whatever our behavior might be. And yes. to be fully conscious of that, not retroactively thinking, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm responsible, you know, but right. to be fully conscious that we may have this angst um, underlying uh, the energy that we feel, and um, and and what would you suggest we do proactively then? What what are your Marcus Aurelius wisdom for is I should say wisdom for today? I would say the first step is very careful and thought thoughtful introspection regarding your particular triggers, whether it's you, it's myself, it's anybody else. Um, People are made angry by different things under different circumstances. They are caused anxiety in different ways and they have differing uh, antecedent conditions that tend to make them anxious. You have to know your own mind. You have to know your own tendencies very well. And you have to be brutally honest with yourself um, about what tends to bring out the worst in you. And Having done that, having introspected properly, you can then guard against some of those triggers occurring. You can challenge the underlying beliefs and expectations that might be leading to uh, fear, frustration, anxiety, anger, etc. Um, I mean, if most of us are accustomed to being able to leave home and go more or less where we want and when we want. So because we're accustomed to it, 
we develop an expectation that that's the way the world is supposed to be at all times or at almost all times. And when we're deprived of some of that liberty, um, it, it can trigger frustration and anger. And, you know, I've, I've been watching news and I've, I've seen some outbreaks of that kind of thing. Um, I would suggest that the people who are uh, engaging in, you know, violent criminal behavior uh, have at the very least failed to know their own minds and failed to, failed to um, guard against uh, being triggered in such a way as to lead to that kind of ignoble behavior. Uh, and certainly if they're, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, spousal abuse has gone up. Um, if there are men who are hitting their wives, for example, they have certainly failed. Uh, they certainly failed to be virtuous husbands. They've certainly failed to be virtuous men. And they have failed to govern themselves so as to behave like men and not beasts. That's a great answer. I probably would add, um, you know, get a copy of your book, A Life Worth Living. So we're not looking back on a life, regretting the kinds of things that can happen. It's a wonderful book. And I want to get into the book now, into the meat of the book. Yeah, Uh, that is is step one, though, buy my book. Step one. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's a great book. And, uh, you know, it's a good time to read the book. It's full of examples that are very tutorial, very empowering, and and uh, they prompt uh, the kind of self-reflection that you just, uh, you know, offered as advice, uh, sagely advice indeed. Okay, listen, your book has been criticized for a couple of things. Uh, anybody that goes to Amazon is going to read that, you know, what are you doing adding in uh, discussions on multiverses and the problem of evil? So the two-part question, then, Professor, to set us up, do you think these were indeed diversions off of target? And two, what and why multiverses in, in, a, in a book on Stoicism? Well, the subtitle is uh, Meditations on God, Death, and Stoicism. So, um, and, of course, the, uh, the title is A Life Worth Living, and there is more to life than just Stoicism. Uh, I took the particular essays that I had included, um, I took those to be relevant um, to the question of of, uh, whether or not belief in God is rationally justifiable, um, whether or not uh, one's attitude towards death can be improved, uh, rationally governed by thinking carefully about the nature of death, the inevitability of death. I even put in there a uh, what's essentially an extended film review of No Country for Old Men, precisely because it is a movie uh, about death. It is a movie about a, um, a sociopathic uh, murderer, and one suspects that the uh, there, there's some conversations uh, about whether there is a God and whether God cares about this and how does God let this go on. So everything in the book, in my view, pertains to the question, uh, what is a well-lived life? Um, and I, I don't think that, I, I don't feel compelled to restrict my, um, my writing only to the topic of stoicism uh, and not to it's uh, it's applications to to specific um, concerns, specific issues. The, now, the multiverse was mentioned because the multiverse is very often used as a uh, an objection against 
the fine-tuning argument, the fine-tuning argument for the probability of God's existence. It's kind of yep. a modern permutation of the teleological argument. Um, and so I, I made the case that the, uh, the multiverse really does not serve the purpose that um, those who oppose the fine-tuning argument want it to serve particularly well. And, you know, I don't share that criticism. That's a great explanation, but it does lead to the next question. You know, we live at a time when, for all intent and purposes, a belief in God is um, arguably uh, the most important um, branch people can hang on to, uh, especially with loved ones ill or or dying. And uh, you don't believe that Stoicism requires a belief in God. Why is that? I don't believe it requires a belief in God, but it also does not preclude a belief in God. Most of the Greco-Roman Stoics were what we would today describe as pantheists. Um, they thought that the universe was God and that the what they call the logos, what we might think of as the laws of nature, are kind of the, uh, the mind of God, the organizing principles of God. But um, I, I do not want to discourage atheists or agnostics or people who are not enamored of religion. I don't want them to be discouraged from pursuing Stoicism because they think, oh, well, it's, it's got God in it and I just can't get on board with that. Even Marcus Aurelius uh, made a remark in his meditations. He said, look, whether it's God or atoms, you know, whether, whether there's a plan of some type or whether it's just atoms in a void, you're still better off seeking wisdom, trying to live virtuously. Uh, trying to be courageous, just, uh, self-disciplined, and so on. I if think you're no, right. Yeah, I, if for no other reason than how you feel about yourself, I totally agree. All right. Uh, you suggest that suicide is a perfectly moral choice to make in the face of a life not worthy. Uh, not worth living, I guess. And I, I, I want to change that. I don't want to leave it as worthy because then we're going to have to define it. But it, again, a two-part question. When is a life not worth living? And why is suicide sometimes the appropriate answer? Uh, as for when a life is not worth living, that is is going to be very difficult to give any simple answer to that. Uh, the, the Stoics, met, some of the Stoics argue that life is not worth living if it cannot be lived nobly, uh, if if one is deprived of certain faculties or deprived of uh, the ability to pursue virtue. Uh, Cato, for example, committed suicide rather than live under the rule of Caesar, whom he regarded to be a tyrant, and he thought he had, um, he thought he had an obligation not to even accept a pardon from Caesar, because that would be justifying uh, his position. So he killed himself instead of doing that. I, um, I would make the case that it is fairly rare that a life is not worth living uh, sufficiently, um, sufficiently devoid of the opportunity to live in a noble fashion, that suicide is justifiable. But um, I, I would argue that there can be such cases and that probably the person living the life is in the best position to decide uh, whether his or her future is um, valuable, disvaluable, whether it's worth, uh, worth enduring. Um, as I mentioned on one of my uh, previous um, previous times on your show, my brother uh, Vinny committed suicide, but I, I I do not think his suicide falls into the category. Um, I, I don't believe his life was unworthy of living. Of course, he's in a better position to make that 
judgment than me, perhaps. But um, I think he was just uh, unfortunately um, subjected to the the symptoms of of anxiety, depression, and um, had not had been suffering emotionally long enough that he, he, in some sense or another, either couldn't take it anymore or chose not to take it anymore. I I do not um, advocate suicide for persons suffering from depression or anxiety, but there could be other conditions. For example, if if I were to be diagnosed with a condition that essentially guaranteed that I was only going to live, um, say, another few months and uh, that month, those months would be nothing but decay, decline, uh, loss of my mental faculties, loss of my ability to recognize my wife, our kids. Um, if it was all clearly downhill from here, and if I saw that my family was suffering emotionally and psychologically, I might uh, choose to, you know, request um, active euthanasia. In that case, I, I could imagine circumstances, but relatively rare, fairly extreme circumstances, I would argue. So you're not suggesting that, um, oh, maybe because you committed a crime, um, even murder, that you look at your life and say, well, I'm I'm not redeemable. I should just end it all and commit suicide. Or are you? No, I'm not. I, uh, it is possible that there are irredeemable people. I, I don't know um, with absolute certainty whether that means Jeffrey Epstein, he's pretty close i would say um and maybe you know uh and whether he actually committed suicide or not is another question um yeah, his suicide would would not have been if it is suicide it would not have been morally justifiable it might have been in some sense uh understandable just kind of revulsion with oneself but no um no i, I do not advocate suicide for persons who have behaved in a way that that they find shameful we, we've all behaved in to some degree or another in ways we find shameful. I, I, I say try to improve your character. All right, um, did, sir. Did, did I not answer the question properly? No, that's or? perfect. That, no, is, okay. that, that is perfect, yeah. Uh, for me personally, I see the philosophy of Stoicism to be a means of self-help, self-improvement, right. uh, a means by which one can move past anger, shame, fear, and so forth. And I think your book does a great job at illustrating how one can do that. So my question, why'd you write the book? Uh, the bo- the content of the book was actually written over a period of about 20 years. There, there are articles that I had published in various uh, journals. And um, so I, I wrote those for you know various motivations, for various purposes. Um, I put it together as a book and asked John Hunt Publishing to take a look at it as a book because uh, I really think that the foundational principles of Stoicism and their application um, can do an enormous amount to reduce um, negative psychological emotional states, unpleasant psychological emotional states. Uh, Anxiety is absolutely uh, epidemic proportions even prior to the, the pandemic. Um, anxiety, depression seems like they're, they're ever expanding. Um, and in addition to, you know, pharmacological regimes and so on, I I think that, um, bibliotherapy, uh, learning to learning from books, learning from, um, people who have, you know, ingested some of the uh, wisdom of the ancient world is, is, uh, probably, well, 
it has the potential to be enormously beneficial. I know it has been for me, and I was a wreck. I was a disaster, and you know, throughout my early to mid thirties. And uh, I'm, I always tell people I'm, I'm slightly less of a wreck and disaster these days. So it, it worked for me. Maybe it'll work for other people as well. So the bottom line is you care about people. All right. Uh, I, I, I would say I, I would say I do. <laughs> Hesitantly. <laughs> I'm also I, I do have a bit of a misanthropic streak in me. That's probably a character flaw that I should work on. But, yeah, I care about people. You know, (laughs) this Corona gets all over. I'm going to fly down there and buy you a beer just to get closer to that personality. Listen, (laughs) your essay, No Country for Old Men, essentially asks the question, what are we to make of ourselves? I think that's probably the most important question anything anyone can answer. Flesh Mm. out for us what your intent is behind this essay, please. Well, the, the character Anton Chigurh uh, is clearly, um, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's a, a, a murderer. He's uh, utterly brutal, utterly without remorse. You know, he's, he's a very, very dark character. And, of course, most of us are not particularly, um, particularly similar to that character. However, uh, we should ask ourselves, um, as we look at not only Chigurh, but the other characters in the film and, and what happens to them and why it happens to them, we should ask ourselves, uh, to what extent have circumstances made us who we are? To what extent has uh, heredity and environment made us who we are? And to what extent are we content with the persons that we are? Um, I think it would be a fairly rare person who does not wish to improve in various ways. Before you can improve yourself, you have to be brutally honest with yourself about the places where you need improvement. And I, I think being honest with ourselves is one of the great challenges. Probably the biggest that we stand in our life. Just last week we were, you know, I had Joel Weinberger on the show and we talked about the power of the unconscious. We talked about free will. We talked about how much uh, of our lives uh, are operating in, in automatic ways, automaticity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, uh, as we said in one of the letters, that is uh, a lifetime work, um, making the unconscious conscious. Listen, Professor, uh, in about 30 seconds, tell everyone how they can reach out to you, learn more about your work, find your books, and so forth. Uh, well, the two easiest ways to find my books are to go to uh, my Amazon page, Amazon.com, and, of course, U.S., U.K., etc., and also to visit the uh, John Hunt Publishing uh, website and type in my name, and uh, my books will pop up there. If, if you do not, if, if you don't like Amazon, if you don't want to purchase things from Amazon, there are alternative outlets where you can uh, purchase my books, and, and you can decide whether I uh, have anything worth saying to say or not. Real quick one. You're teaching some online courses. Are they available for anyone, or do we have to enroll at the university to get them? Oh, as far as I know, you have to enroll, and I've, I've only started teaching them within the past couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm barely I'm, – I'm learning how to do it as I go. So I, I don't know this would be the ideal uh, experience, uh, pedagogical experience for anybody. <laughs> so I think uh, – if my students are subjected to it, maybe we, we can limit the damage to just them. <laughs> my youngest son is at UW. He's finishing his bachelor's in uh, computer engineering. Mm. And here he is, you know, 
Uh, my ranch is in Spokane, quite a ways from about five-hour drive from Seattle, and mm. we're out in the boondocks where the Internet is not the greatest in the world, and he's trying to handle classes and work through Zoom, and he is one frustrated, and he is saying, they're just making it up as they're going along, Dad. They have no clue. They've never done this before. I wish yes, you the best of luck, Professor. Really come in handy. <laughs> keep writing books, and we'll keep bringing you back to the show. Great. I want to thank you, sir, for your willingness to share your work with us. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.